The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. One of the uh, most exciting moments in any movie is usually that, that moment when a character, if, if their identity has been hidden, when that character reveals who they are. It's the, there's often a build-up to that particular moment, and then that character reveals, this is who I am. We can think of Star Wars and the obvious one where Luke Skywalker discovers that his father is actually Darth Vader. I actually <clears throat> knew that before I watched that movie for the first time. That was spoiled for me, and so I knew what was coming when I first saw it. Or maybe it's the time <clears throat> in the Iron Man movie where Tony Stark reveals to the world he is, in fact, Iron Man. Or maybe, and perhaps the biggest reveal of them all, of, 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 all of, of all of the movies in the world, ever made in the world, the biggest reveal of all is that time where Daniel Millard, sorry, Daniel Hillard revealed to his children that he was, in fact, Mrs. Doubtfire. You didn't see that one coming, did you? Like, who, what's it, what is it going to be? It's Mrs. Doubtfire. I haven't seen that movie in years. In this passage, Jesus, in many ways, takes off the mask. He reveals who he actually is. Here in John 5, Jesus reveals the true nature of his identity. Now, as readers of John's Gospel, we've seen this coming. We knew that this was going to happen at some stage because this is how John opened his Gospel, talking about Jesus is the one who is God and is with God. Here, Jesus reveals it to those who aren't reading John's Gospel, but who John is writing about. He reveals who he is to a, to a group of Jews. And if you remember from last week, he was in Jerusalem. He, he'd healed a man on the Sabbath. That was a big no-no. And they got angry at him for that. And then Jesus just kind of doubled down and he said, if you're angry about me healing on the Sabbath, you're going to be really upset when I tell you that me and God the Father are equal. And it says there in verse 18, they tried all the more to kill him. And then Jesus continues in the passage that we're looking at today. And he doesn't hold back either. This passage is kind of like trying to take a sip of water from a fire hose. What Jesus says here is truly staggering. And, and we just simply do not have the time this morning to just uncover it bit by look at every single facet. It would take our entire lives to do that. What we are going to do, though, simply is... Submerge ourselves into God's word. We're going to marinate our hearts in this and let these spectacular and staggering realities wash over us and then lead us into worship as we take communion later on, as we sing a bit more later on. <clears throat> One of the greatest dangers for a Christian is that we are prone to forget the immense glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. We are prone to forget the immense weight of glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. And this is seriously a big problem. No one is immune. This is a real risk for Christians. There is simply no one more important than Jesus Christ. And a very real danger is that we would forget him. Not that we would forget about him, but that we would come to forget the reality of his glory. Like taking a, a pot of boiling water off the stove, the danger is that we would slowly and imperceptibly 
cool over time. And usually that would happen by starving ourselves of God's word, by removing that from our lives or neglecting that, and slowly we will become cold at Jesus. We'll begin to shrug our shoulders at Jesus. We'll begin to confuse grace with a license to sin. We'll conflate forgiveness with, uh, with, with the tolerance of sin. We get used to sin. We even make peace with sin. We come to believe that God is pretty happy with us just so long as we believe that He exists. That's all that He really cares about. That is widely accepted as the very low bar to faith. Jesus' words here in John 5 are the remedy to that. We're going to look today at this passage and we're going to break it into three basic assertions that Jesus makes about himself. Now, it's not that Jesus makes these three assertions in order. It's not that he says, my first point, guys, is this. My second point is this. My third point. He doesn't do that. It's this long discourse that Jesus talks about and, and he, the, these, these realities about who Jesus is, they, they are multi-layered, they are multifaceted, they, they are complex, they overlap one another. And so we're going to just kind of try and draw out the, these three key assertions that Jesus makes about who he is to these Jews who wanted to kill him. The first assertion that Jesus makes here is that he and God the Father are one. And by one, he means that they are the same person in essence and authority and glory. There is, <clears throat> there is simply no greater claim that anybody could ever make in their life than this, I'm God. Like You can't make a claim, or you can say, I'm a trillionaire, and sure, go for it, whatever, Like say that as much as you want, but if you say, I'm God, that's the biggest claim that anyone could ever make, and that's just, this is what Jesus is claiming here. And, and we've got to do something about that, we've got to come to, we've got to take that in, we've got to understand that, because if he is wrong about that, if he's not God, then we should disregard him. We should walk away. We should have nothing to do with him because he's crazy. But if he's right about that, we should worship him. Back in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah had this incredible vision of the Lord Almighty. He was worshipping in the temple one day and he saw this vision of, of God and he was on a throne high and lifted up and the, the hem of his, of his robe, the hem, the hem itself filled the temple. And as he looked upon the glory of God, he saw these great angelic beings, these great ferocious warriors of light flying around, uh, orbiting around God the Father, orbiting around God. And they had to, even though they were sinless, they had to cover their faces because God's glory was too much. And they had to cover their feet with their wings because they were unworthy. <clears throat> and they called out to one another in amazement, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The prophet Ezekiel was also given a vision of God. And he saw these four beasts which magnify the, the infinite wonder of God, his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence. And high above these beasts, uh, sat on a throne, someone who Ezekiel said looked like a human. 
and from his waist down he was a blazing fire and from his waist up he was like gleaming gleaming amber and and he was um, there was fire encircling all around him and there was this brilliant light surrounding him that was like a rainbow and Jesus quite staggeringly here claims that those two passages as well as all the other passages that talk about God were about him that he is one with God. He was the one on that throne. He and God the Father are one. Psalm 113 asks the question, Who is like the Lord our God, the one enthroned on high? Jesus answers that question. I am. I am. Friends, Jesus does not give us the option of ignoring him. You can either bow down and you worship him, or you can reject him and walk away. But, but no one with any kind of ounce of an intellectual integrity can nothing Jesus. You can't shrug your shoulders at him. You can't, something must be done about him in your heart. He and the Father are one. He's making this claim. You can't go, okay. You either go, no, he's crazy, or yes, he's Lord. He and the Father are one. And he lists here at least, at the very least, three things that detail their oneness. First of all, they are one in purpose. He says in verse 17, My Father is still working, and I am working also. He says in verse 19, The Son is not able to do anything on His own, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Jesus is not a lone gunslinger, doing whatever He wanted, separate to to God the Father. No, they are united in purpose. They are united in their work. They are united in their activity. They are in agreement on these things. They work together. They are together, working together. When God met Moses in the burning bush, that was Jesus. When King Nebuchadnezzar saw that fourth figure in the fiery furnace, he knew Shadrach was in there. He knew that Meshach was in there. He knew that Abednego was in there. But he saw a fourth. He was looking at Jesus. When you see Jesus healing someone, you're seeing God heal them. When you're seeing Jesus show compassion on someone, you're seeing God show compassion on them. When you're seeing Jesus die on the cross, you're seeing God die on the cross. They are one in purpose. They are also one in love. In verse 20, Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he is doing, and he will show him greater works. Here the curtain is pulled back and we're, we're drawn into the interior mysterious workings of the Holy Trinity. God the Father and God the Son, together with God the Spirit, love one another. They don't just cooperate one with one another, they don't just work in tandem, they have perfect love for one another. In 1 John 1, John says, God is love. It's not that God saw the option of love and thought that's a good thing. No, he is love. Love finds its meaning from God and, and we know that because of how much God loves the Son and God loves the Spirit and how much the Spirit and the Son love God the Father and they love one another. Mysteriously, the Trinity is three persons in one essence. We must not confuse their persons, assuming that the Son is the Father, or that the Father is the Spirit, because He's not. They can refer to each other as He. 
And at the same time, we cannot divide their essence, assuming that they are three, part, three different parts. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods. There is one God. And this love within the Trinity is perfect love, perfectly shown by a perfect person to a perfect other who is himself. Some suggest, and I think they're right, that, that when Jesus hung on the cross, the most painful part of that was, was not the nails through his, through his hands. It was not the, the, the thorns in his scalp. It was the fact that for those moments he was separated from the love of his Father. How great the pain is searing loss. The Father turns his face away. Jesus and God the Father are one in love. They are one in purpose, they are one in love, and they are also one in glory. Verse 23 says that the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And this might just be the most staggering thing of them all. It certainly wouldn't have been lost on the people hearing this for the first time. In the same way that Isaiah fell face down, the same way that Ezekiel fell face down and worshipped the Lord of glory, Jesus is saying that he and his Father's intentions are that he should be worshipped the same. He should be put first, the same as God the Father is put first. He should be loved with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength. Does Jesus have all of the love of our heart? Does Jesus have all of the love of our soul? Does Jesus have all of the, of the love that our strength can muster? Are we wholeheartedly committed to him with every fiber of our being, or are we still holding out? This, this is the precipice that John 5 brings us to, and we've got to do something about that. We've got to do, do something with Jesus's claim we, we must worship this man with our love with our affection we must worship this man with our commitment with our faithfulness to him we must worship this man with our entire obedience worshiping jesus uh, means doing what he says whether he's telling us what to do with our time whether he's telling us what to do with our money whether he's telling us what to do with our bodies whether he's telling us what to do with our relationships we are called to obey the Lord of glory because this is, the, this is the only option Jesus gives us or walk away. Not nothing. Not, you want to feel like it. And just as a little bit, little bit of a sidebar here about obedience. Obedience to God is not a begrudging thing. It, it shouldn't be a begrudging thing. Like if we're going, oh, fine. I'll sponsor another child. I don't want to, but I guess I'm oh, fine. Oh, I'd, rather that, I'd rather that extra third of coffee per day. But I, you know, that, That's not the kind of obedience that God calls us to. Obedience is a joyful thing that God calls us. He says, come and obey me. And he puts his finger... Like, here's my experience, and here's what I think the Bible teaches us about obedience. That when we obey, it normally comes at a thing that we don't want to obey and that was, it's something that we disobey but there are things in my life in my past there are sins that I loved I, I did with great joy and I was challenged about these things by friends and I shrugged my shoulders whatever I'll do what I want and then the Holy Spirit in his kindness and his mercy 
place his finger on that thing. That doesn't belong there, does it? And he kindly, graciously, and convincingly showed me that that's not right. And it's not a, hey, come and obey me, and I have to let go of one of my loves. It's actually a God turns my heart to despise that sin, to make war with that sin, to put sin to death, to mortify sin. Obedience is the work of the Holy Spirit causing us to love God more than anything else in this life. Maybe God's calling you to obedience in a particular area of your life, a particular wrestle that you're struggling to get on top of. And it feels like a tug of war at the moment. Pray that the Holy Spirit would change your heart. The greatest victories that I've had in warring and putting, death to, putting, putting sin to death have come from the long-standing, regular, meaningful time in God's Word. There's no shortcuts. It's being in God's Word daily, meaningfully. The second assertion that we'll point out here is his claim to be able to give life. Now, for the Jews who were hearing this, their belief was that God was the one who gave life. Psalm 36 says, For the wellspring of life is with you. Psalm 119 says, Give me life through your word. God the Father was understood as the one who gave life. He was the one who created the world. He gives life. And yet here, Jesus also claims to give life. He says in verse 21, And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. Friends, we really need to pay attention to this because before we know Christ, we are dead and we need the life that God gives. In the Garden of Eden, when God warned Adam that if he ate the fruit, he would die, it wasn't that he would die instantly, but from that instant, death would become the reality for all of mankind. Every person born since then was born under the curse of sin and would live under the suffering shadow of death and no one was immune. And our condition is that serious that the Bible constantly refers to those people who have not yet put their trust in Jesus as those who are dead in their trespasses. Dead people cannot make themselves alive. They are dead and any hope of life in and of themselves is gone. It's that, it's that hollow feeling that we have that we struggle with. Feeling like we should have dignity, we should have purpose, we should have satisfaction, but we're missing that. That's the long shadow of death. So when Jesus says that he gives life, he, he's not talking about a mild improvement of our circumstances. He's not talking about like a bit of a pay rise and a, and a few other things going our way and grass is getting a bit greener and then that's kind of then you've got life. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about improving our morality by 20%, just, making us, just tweaking us here and there, making us a bit better. He's talking about giving life to dead people, raising the dead. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He and he alone is the one who can change our spiritual condition radically and eternally from being so dead spiritually that we must live under the shadow of the fear of death to being people who are spiritually alive and for whom death has been changed from a horrible beast to a ball of fur. 
Death has lots of sting. Death has, has had its teeth pulled out. That's the kind of life that Jesus offers, that he says he can give. The, life, the kind of life that we can go, we don't fear death. We don't fear death and its long shadow. Like We live in a world where we would rather not think about death. We kind of push it to the side, push it to the margins. And on the occasions that we attend a funeral or something like that and it's brought to our attention, we give ourselves about 45 minutes to an hour and we just we look at it and we deal with it and then we move on. We, we try to forget about it because of fear. The kind of life that Jesus gives means that we don't fear death and its long shadow. We don't, we don't worry about such things because death is, is no longer the end. Death is now a doorway into the glory of God. And if that's true, if this is actually the life that Jesus offers, then the most important question that anybody could ever ask in their entire lives is this, how do I get it? How do I get that life that Jesus promises to give? Well, he tells us this answer in verse 24. He says, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Here's how you get made alive again. You hear his word and you believe him. You believe him and the one who sent him. And when that happens, you pass from being someone who was under judgment, that's the death, and you pass into life. You, you are no longer under condemnation, that's death. The death is the condemnation of God against our sin, that's his wrath against sin. That's the death. And we pass from that to life. So if the opposite of death is life, the opposite of condemnation is forgiveness. He goes on to verse 25 to say, Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Here's how we get life. We look at Jesus' words in our Bibles. We hear them with our hearts. We believe his word. We believe him and we shape our lives around him. Those who believe, he says, will not come under judgment. They will be forgiven. Their, their sins will no longer count against them. Because by believing, a transaction has been made where our sins are traded to his perfect record of obedience. This is the, the wonderful transaction that every Christian has made. They have traded. They, a, a Christian is not somebody who has got a, a pretty good track record. They, 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 they show great uh, potential of being a good person, of being a good Christian, and God goes and selects the best ones and says, yeah, I think this person could actually do good things for me. That's not a Christian. A Christian is someone who has made the most important trade in their life. And they've come to God offering nothing but their sin. And their sin is filth. It's disgusting. It's a bag of pus. And they trade it in. And they receive in return from the Lord of glory perfect, glorious, pure, refreshing, clear righteousness. And they are made righteous. They are made clean. Their, their sins are taken away. Their guilt is taken away. Their shame is taken away. Their, their record of wrong taken away, removed. Jesus' perfect record of obedience has been applied 
perfectly and eternally to their hearts. That's what a Christian is. If you're a Christian, you were once dead. You were once dead. And now you are alive. You will not come under judgment. There is no condemnation for you. There there is no condemnation for you. You have passed from death to life. And that is the most important thing about you. And that that is the very best thing about you. You have been saved. It is the truest thing about you. How do we know this is true? How, how do we know that Jesus can actually do what he says? Well, in verse 26, he says, The Father has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And when Jesus was executed by people who really know how to kill people, and his body was examined and confirmed to be dead by people who know what death looks like, he rose again from the grave. And the disciples who walked away from him and then watched him die, they saw him again. They, they walked with him again. They talked with him again. They ate with him again. They embraced him again. They saw him alive. Jesus' resurrection is proof that he has life in himself that has been granted from the Father, life that can conquer the curse of sin and its resulting death. And because of Jesus, death has lost its sting. We no longer live under the long and fearful shadow of death. And once again, because of that reality that Jesus is is claiming, we must do something about it. We need to ditch the, the life that we might find somewhere else. We need to ditch the mirage of the false promises of life in anything and everything else and go to Jesus for life. Brothers and sisters, we are promised life everywhere we look. We are promised that we will get life if we have more money or more possessions or more experiences or a better body or a promotion or whatever else it is. And yes, some of those things might be nice as we get them, but they are not enough. They are not enough to quench our thirst for the life that we need. Jesus offers cool, fresh, life-giving water to those who have become used to sucking on mud. Ditch the mirage. Ditch the mud. Come to him for life. Believe in him. Know that by faith in him, your sins have passed onto him and they are no longer on you any moment. You are no longer under judgment and you will be refreshed in the Lord. The third assertion that he makes here is that he is the judge of all mankind. And, and this naturally flows on from the previous assertion. Jesus has the authority to grant resurrection uh, life and that naturally necessitates the, the authority to judge, to, to not give life to those who do not believe. Jesus said those who hear his words and believe will not come under condemnation. Therefore it stands to reason that those who do hear his words but don't believe are still on, under condemnation. They, are still, they still will be held to account for their sins. Coming back to verse 22, Jesus said, The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now God the Father certainly does display his judgment in the Old Testament, no doubt, but there still remains the final day of judgment, is what Jesus is referring to here. In the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel spoke of this day of judgment. 
where the Ancient of Days would take his seat like a judge in a courtroom and he will come to, to judge evil. He will judge all the evil of the world. And in this vision, Daniel saw one who he said had the appearance like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was given dominion and authority and a kingdom that, and a kingdom that would last forever and the authority to judge. And in verse 27, Jesus says that he, that's God the Father, has granted him, that's God the Son, the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man from Daniel's vision who would sit in judgment over mankind. We recoil at this truth, don't we? I mean, God standing in judgment over us is one thing, but we recoil at the fact that this is Jesus saying this. But there's a, there's a common and, and popular false belief that God is the, God the Father is the, is the judge, and he's the kind of mean, nasty one, and God the Son is the nice guy. He gets everybody off the hook. But it's just not true. Jesus, Jesus is saying right here, no, God's, God's handing judgment to me. I'm the one who judges. I'm the one who does this. The judgment to come at the end of the day is will be presided over by Jesus. Those who have heard his word and believe will receive eternal life. Those who have heard his word but remained hardened in their unbelief will remain under condemnation. The idea of God judging the world is not a popular one, is it? Like we, that's something that like, we generally don't like and we almost feel a little bit embarrassed about as Christians. But it's something that we all yearn for, Right? justice, proper, perfect justice is something that we all yearn for. Consider the events just of this past week. If you've been paying attention to what's been happening in, in Israel and Gaza. And there's that, there was that bombing of the hospital, the, um, uh, the Al-Ali hospital in Gaza. And I've been reading the news and watching each side throw blame towards the other, hard to make heads or tails with it, and honestly, I just don't know. It's hard to know what's true about these various claims. But here's what we do know is absolutely true. Revelation 19.11 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true and he judges and makes war with justice we might never find out who bombed that hospital but the son of man has perfect clarity not just over the actions of every person involved but also the intentions of their heart and he will meter out perfect justice to the perpetrators he will meet around perfect justice to those who have taken hostages. He will meet around perfect justice to those who have done absolutely atrocious things over the last few weeks. He is the perfect judge. And no one will look at his judgment and say, he's too heavy-handed. No one will look at his judgment and say, he's too soft. It's, it's perfect justice delivered by a perfect judge who sees everything perfectly. 
and he will dose out the perfect amount of justice. It's a good thing, right? We yearn for that, right? We, we desire that perfect justice. Here's where it becomes unpopular, though. If Jesus is going to judge the actions and the intentions of hearts in the Middle East, he's going to judge the actions and the intentions of our hearts, too. And if that's all we knew about Jesus, then he would be terrifying. Because we're all guilty. If all we knew about Jesus was that he was the judge, he would be the most fearful person in history. Because he's a perfect judge, he sees our hearts perfectly, and we're all stuffed. But that's not all that we know about Jesus. We also know that he is a gracious God who forgives The only shelter from the Son of Man is in the Son of Man himself. And those who, instead of running from him, run to him to be saved from his wrath by his grace, they will be saved. This is what it means to believe. It's to run to Jesus. Not offering anything to him, but receiving everything from him. Not offering, look at Jesus, look Jesus, look at all the things I can do for you. No, it's kind of saying, Jesus, I've got nothing to give you. The only thing that I contribute to this glorious transaction and equation is my horrible sin. This is why belief is so more, so much more than simply only acknowledging that God exists. That is, that is just utterly rudimentary. Like if you think that all God cares about is just that, that I believe that he exists and that's all he cares about, that's like being put in a cage with, an, with a hungry mama bear who's just been separated from her cubs and you think, I'll be saved if I just acknowledge that the bear's there. No, you won't. You'll be torn to shreds in seconds. It means believing in Jesus is more than just intellectual assent to the general truths about God. A lot of people like the morality, they like the community and the general community of the people of God, but they don't give it much more thought than that. Belief is more than that. Belief is more even more than just a, a robust theological framework. Having all the right theological arguments will not save you. No, to believe in the Son of Man is to run to Jesus in our sorry, sinful state, trusting in his eternal love for us that he won't snuff us out. It's believing his word. He won't stuff us out, but he will save us from our sins and he will protect us from his wrath and he will give us his perfect record and he will make us alive with him forever. And his word becomes the ultimate authority over our lives. And now, this new reality for us becomes the most important thing about us. Every decision, every action, every thought, And every intention is affected by belief, by believing in Jesus. This is what it means in verses 28 and 29 where he says, Do not be amazed at this, because the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Hear this. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. You see, belief in Jesus, as the Bible explains it, is not just an internal emotion that, has no, that makes no dint or has any kind of bearing on our outer actions. 
it touches on every aspect of our lives. It transforms our intentions. It transforms our motivations. It commandeers our thoughts and our feelings and expresses itself through our works and through our actions and through our words. Yes, we believe in grace alone, but we don't believe in grace that remains alone. Here's the thing. If you believe in grace that gets you off the hook, but makes no dent into the decisions that you make or the trajectory of your life, then you are believing in a cheap, weak, and artificial grace. It is not the grace of Jesus Christ, and most likely the God that you are worshipping is a figment of your imagination. If that's the case, when it comes to the day of judgment, you will be facing the Son of Man, the Judge, Jesus Christ, on your own. And Revelation 19 tells us, John goes on there, that he will judge the world with a sharp, two-edged sword that comes from his mouth. That's his word. And with one razor-sharp edge, he will, con- he will confront those who do not believe, and with the other razor-sharp edge, he will comfort those who do believe. You see, if, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here. We are so glad you were spending your Sunday morning with us. But if that's you, seeing Jesus on the day of judgment will be the terror of all terrors. Because it will dawn on you that you rejected the lion, the one who was more beautiful and more glorious and more ferocious than you could ever have imagined. And you have thrown his glory to the dirt to your own detriment. But if you're here and you're a Christian, and if you put your trust in Jesus, you're believing in him to, to save you from your sins. And, you're, and, that, and that's it. Seeing Jesus on the day of judgment will be the sweetest moment of our lives because we will be looking at the judge who has taken our judgment. We'll be looking at the lamb who takes away the sins of the world and he takes away our condemnation, he takes away our guilt, he takes away our shame, he took our death. Paul says in Romans 3 that Jesus is both the just and the justifier of the one who believes. He is the just. He will follow through on his judgment, but he's also the one who makes us just. He's the one who makes us righteous. If you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, the message is this. The judge has come to be judged on your behalf. That's what is on offer for you. The one who is God has taken on flesh and become like us. And the invitation is to repent, to turn from your ways and to follow him on his And we must repent. We must look with sorrow on our sin and our willing rejection and rebellion against God. We must recognize that even our best deeds are wicked when done apart from Him. We must acknowledge that what we deserve is death, but what we get in Jesus is life because He died in our place. He died for us willingly and joyfully because of His great love for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. 
but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.